Welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers of African American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I'm thrilled that Carla L. Peterson, professor of English at University of Maryland College Park, has agreed to be our guest for today. Dr. Peterson is the author of Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City, published by Yale University Press in 2011. In our conversation, the professor shares with readers how, armed with only one name of one ancestor, she embarks on an 11-year journey, at the end of which she knows more of her family history, as well as the history of Blacks living in the city Washington Irvine named Gotham. Readers will walk away knowing many new facts, and some of what Professor Peterson shares will cause you to rethink that which you thought you knew. I'm certain you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Good day, and welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Carla Peterson, author of Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. Thank you so much for being here today, Carla. How are you? I'm good, and thank you for inviting me. Good. Um, All right, so let's begin. Let's jump into our conversation um, why don't we begin just by you telling me a little bit about yourself, about, you know, maybe where you grew up. I'm hoping that we can go from there to, um, you know, how did we get to here with Black Gotham? Okay. So the title gives away my interest, which Black Gotham, uh, Black for African American and Gotham for New York City. That was a term coined in the ninth, in the early 19th century by Washington Irving uh, for New York City. And so I was born in New York. I'm a native New Yorker. Um, but I moved around a lot. My father worked in international public health. And so from the age of five to the age of 17, I was outside, uh, I lived outside of the United States, first in Beirut, Lebanon, and then in Geneva, Switzerland. And so when I came back to the United States to go to college, I felt very non-American, as if I really didn't know what my place in the United States was, and certainly not my place in my native um, city, uh, home place, birthplace of uh, New York. And so the book was really represents to me a kind of homecoming, Mm -hmm. um, finding my roots in New York. Um, and that was really important to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good stuff. Okay, so your education then, it was uh, your, sorry, your BA, you started doing your undergraduate education in the U.S. then? Yes, I went to uh, Radcliffe College, mm-hmm. um, which was the Women's College of Harvard. Mm-hmm. And since um, it, women now attend Harvard, that really dates me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Yale uh, Graduate school, school in Comparative Literature. And so in all my education, undergrad and grad, I was really so focused still on Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was with great reluctance that I got pulled into the... Uh, back into the United States and the study of the United States. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that eventually after my first book, which was about the 19th century French and British novel, 
um, I really, I crossed the Atlantic and started studying American and African American um, literature. <laughs> and um, so that was really important. And there were, I think that was personal reasons. <laughs> um, I finally was ready to let go of some of my Europeanness and become more interested in the place where I was born and where I was at. I got my higher education and where I'd settled down to live and, and so forth. Um, but two things. One is that I've remained const consistently in the 19th century. I'm very much of a 19th century scholar. And the other thing is that in the work that I've done, I've discovered the degree, uh, how much the degree to which African Americans in the 19th century, um, in the North at least, intellectuals, really were very open um, to European culture, to Western culture, mm -hmm. um, and that they really didn't see it as something alien, but they really saw it as part of their own tradition as well. Right. So we talk a lot about the vernacular and vernacular traditions, and yes, that's true, mm -hmm. but one of the things that my book emphasizes is a real sense of cosmopolitanism mm -hmm. and the degree to which the people I talk about in my book were really true cosmopolitans. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, in part, comes out of my own European background. Right. Well, you went exactly where I wanted to go, um, which is to talk a bit about cosmopolitanism um, or the term. Before we before we go there, is, is there like a quick, brief description that you can give um, about what we mean when we talk about cosmopolitanism? Um, sure. So there's the Greek root cosmos and polis. So cosmos means of the world, right? Yep. And a polis means um, people. Mm -hmm. So it's the it's people of the world, quite simply. Mm -hmm. And it is the desire on the part of of, of, um, of people to think beyond local boundaries, the city, think beyond national boundaries, yes. the country whether it's the United States or France or Great Britain, and to really think about the world and belonging to the world and really being citizens of the world. Mm -hmm. And what is so interesting is that the term really came into um, usage, came into fashion in the 18th century, mm -hmm. um, in particular in England in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And it meant a person, uh, obviously a European, who was elite mm -hmm. and who had the time and the money uh, to go around the world, um, specifically, especially Europe, mm -hmm. and just kind of uh, be a tourist at large and enjoy him or herself visiting these different places. Right. Um, but what's so interesting is that when you apply it to African Americans, mm -hmm. that idea of the of leisure time um, is is not really so significant or doesn't always apply. Right. But it's really the study of Western culture and the importance of Western literary cultural traditions and where black Americans um, fit into it. Yes, yes. Um, I find it fascinating that you described what it initially was, you know, the, cause, the roots of the, the word um, in terms of it being a part of the elite lifestyle where you had to have time and um, money to be able to be a tourist. Um, and I find that today, you, the, 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 the distinction you're drawing between African Americans' conceptions of that term in terms of culture and um, really um, 
literary and, and fine arts, basically, um, engaging in all various kinds of traditions um, is important. Today, I find when people talk about cosmopolitanism, it really is a kind of, um, in, the, in the public sphere, I should say, um, kind of linked to superficial, um, you know, having citizenship in one or two or three places and being able to fly here and or there, um, which seems to connect nicely to what you were saying initially, but that distinction really does exist when it comes to African-American tradition of cosmopolitanism. Right, so it's very much the idea of embracing um, world culture mm-hmm. and, and not only embracing it, but claiming it as your own mm-hmm. and seeing yourself as part of it and as coming out of that culture. So one example would be that um, the people I talk in, about in my book, which mm-hmm. is based on my family and my family history, yeah. um, they were Episcopalians, yeah. and um, which is a small branch of Protestantism, and um, uh, African Americans tended to be Methodists or Baptist or AME Church. Right. Um, but when blacks claim to be Episcop- uh, Episcopalian, they're claiming a certain dogma, doctrine, rituals, but they're also c- claiming uh, a cosmopolitan religion, mm-hmm. a truly cosmopolitan religion, mm-hmm. because um, Episcopalianism comes out of Anglicanism, the Church of England, that and um, Anglicans refer to their religion as the Anglican Communion, mm-hmm. and they think of it as worldwide. And they also trace Anglicanism back to the first bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. So just, for example, in, in this example of religion, uh, what my family and their friends were doing is saying we are part of a tr- tradition that goes back to the first bishops of Rome, and that is worldwide. It is a communion. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's one example of the way in which it's not just visiting different sites and enjoying, you know, tourist attractions, but it's really claiming a culture as your own and as being part of the tradition. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Uh, This allows us nicely to segue into talking specifically about your family, um, specifically about Philip White and Peter Guignon. Is that Guignon. Guignon. Okay. Guignon. Yeah. And I, um, you know, in this text, you draw a a nice history, an extended history of African Americans in the 19th century by looking at Peter White and... Philip White. Sorry, (laughs) Philip White and Peter Guignon. My mistake. Um, Let's talk a little bit about those two gentlemen. Um, Okay, so actually before we get there, I want to make one final point about... um, uh, cosmopolitanism. Okay. So when I started uh, working on the book, mm-hmm. I found Peter Guignol's um, parents in law, mother and father in law, living on a street in downtown Manhattan. Uh, at the time, it was called Collect Street, and it's now called Center Street. Mm-hmm. And I went down to the municipal archives, and I did research on who lived there. And I found four or five families, black families, who had re- recently purchased um, 
uh, lots of lands on which to build their houses down in um, on Center Street. Mm -hmm. And they were the Marshall family, my great 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 grandparents, mm -hmm. um, the DeGrasses and the Crummels. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at their background, and they came directly or, or were related to countries in all five continents. Wow. So the Boston Crummel came from Africa. Mm -hmm. His wife, Charity Hicks, was part of the of the Quaker Hicks family, mm -hmm. um, so a black member of the white uh, Quaker Hicks family, mm -hmm. and they came from England. Uh, George de Grasse was adopted by a French admiral in India. He came from Calcutta. Mm -hmm. His wife, Maria Van Surly, was of Moroccan and Dutch ancestry. Mm -hmm. My great-great-great-grandmother was a Hewlett, um, again, the black side of the white Hewlett family, from Great Britain, mm -hmm. and her husband came from, uh, Joseph Marshall came from Maracaibo, Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So that to me was just astonishing. Yes. So they were called Africans at the time, and they thought of themselves as Africans. Right. And yet, look at their, look at where they came from, look right. at their origins. Right. They're from all over the globe. Yes. So of course they would be cosmopolitan. Right. Of course they would have a sense of what lay beyond the borders of the United States. Yes, of course. So then to come back and talk more specifically about my family, yeah. um, in the research that I did, much of it is incomplete. So Peter Guignon is my great-great-grandfather, and this is all on my father's mother's side, okay. my, this ancestry. Mm -hmm. And so Peter mm -hmm. Guignon um, uh, was my great-great-grandfather. He was born in New York. And all I could find out was that his parents came from the West Indies. Mm -hmm. and, the, I, I, and West Indies, I eventually found out, meant Haiti. So uh, because Haiti was such a vexed, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> had a um, nation for the United States, yes. uh, very often uh, people simply said the West Indies when in wow. fact they meant Haiti. Okay, okay. And so um, I still to this day don't know exactly uh, who his parents were. His father is never mentioned in any newspaper accounts. His mother is mentioned. He lived with her, and she was obviously of black ancestry. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that it was his father was white because there was a white Guignol family okay. um, and that he was probably um, the product of one of the white Guignols and a slave woman. Mm -hmm. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. uh, Philip White, I know a little bit more about. He's my great-grandfather and his father came from northern England mm -hmm. and his mother came from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And once again, I don't know whether they married, I don't know where they met, I don't know how they got to the United States, but what the census does tell me is they lived together um, in an intact family. So there was a mother, uh, there was a black mother, a white father, and then Philip and several of his siblings, mm -hmm. which I think is, probably, is remarkable yes. for the period. Yeah, I found that remarkable in reading it as well, and I think it also speaks to... Um, 
his independence, I think. Um, I think you gestured to that a little bit as well. Well, a lot within the text that perhaps his upbringing um, made him a little bit different than, or the differences that existed, you tied back sometimes to his being raised by his dad and his mom and all of them living together and just having that strong familial relationship. Right. So I found an obituary um, after Philip's death written by a good friend, George Downing, Mm -hmm. who uh, must have known the family quite well uh, when they were uh, young. And he talks in just very poignant terms about the family and about the strength of the father Mm -hmm. and how the father was a real presence in Philip's life. Mm -hmm. And then Thomas White, the father, dies when Philip is about uh, 10, 12 years old, Mm -hmm. and the family is impoverished. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's very, very close to his mother, and they set to work with the siblings to make a life for themselves. Mm -hmm. So what's really amazing, George Downing goes on to give this account of Philip going to one of the ordinary public schools for colored children. Mm-hmm. And then at, um, in 1840, um, so he was born in 23, so mm-hmm. he would be, what, about 17 years old. Mm-hmm. He becomes an apprentice in the pharmacy of um, really the towering black uh, leader of the period in New York, of James McCune Smith, who was a doctor and a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And he's an apprentice for two years. And so then pointing to what you said about the grounding that Philip White got um, in this sense of self and this can-do attitude and nothing's going to stop me from it, which I think it's part from his father, he decides to go uh, to get professional um, training in pharmacy, which was very unusual at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't until the 1870s that you had to um, go to school and become licensed as a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And so here he is in 1842, from 1842 to 1844, he goes to the College of Pharmacy mm-hmm. of the city of New York mm-hmm. and gets his diploma and mm-hmm. sets up shop. And then from then on, there's no stopping Philip White. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he um, has a corner of a store and he's in re- uh, retail um, first. And then he goes wholesale mm-hmm. um, and uh, really makes quite a bit of money. Um, and the, with the money he makes, he pours it into his family, marries, he has three daughters, but also into his two passions, uh, one of which is St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which yes. I talked about. Yep. And the other is education of black children. Mm-hmm. Those were his two great passions. Mm-hmm. And he didn't stint on working on their behalf, on yes. behalf of those two things. Yes, I, I love, one of the things that I love, just one thing that I love about this character, Philip White, is um, watching his evolution, his his um, growth as a human being. Um, I also find that he is, one can kind of pinpoint and say, here is the example of what you know, Booker T. Washington was talking about later on, uh, you know, his own philosophy of what success looked like. And then later his passion in the arts, the fine arts and literature and music seems to echo what W.E.B. Du Bois was emphasizing at that time. I, I just think he's a fascinating, fascinating person. 
That's such a smart comment to, to think of him as combining Booker T. Washington and Du Bois because it's, yes, it was really entrepreneurship. We African Americans need to go into business, establish our own businesses, and make money for the benefit of the community, but also we need to attend to what Du Bois later calls the soul. Yes. And we need to develop the soul. And so, as I write towards the end of my book, uh, when Philip White um, uh, is mature, this is in the 1870s, mm-hmm. uh, and he's very well established, he becomes a subscribing member of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, yeah. and the first black to do so, and going through the records, I could not find any other um, African American, but then I knew who his who Philip's friends were, I knew the the, the whole black society, and I couldn't find any uh, other one, mm-hmm. anybody else. And mm-hmm. so this enabled um, Philip White to, uh, gave him, you know, special privileges at the Metropolitan Museum. Quite extraordinary, I think, for a black man. At yeah, the time. definitely. I, and he was a pioneer in so many different ways. And um, I find him, as I said, um, just a great example of somebody who is not independence. There's independence in a number of different ways that I'm talking about, but in this instance, what I'm talking about is that he doesn't necessarily need to have his um, desires or what he's interested in be um, reflected in what's going on in the community. He's interested in what he's interested in, and he's going to go and follow those interests, um, which is quite powerful, I think, Um, then and now, then and now. Right. And what I think is so amazing from the photos, the few photos I have of him, he's very light skinned Mm -hmm. and he's got very fine features. And my guess is that he could have passed Mm -hmm. if he wanted to. He could have passed for white, Mm -hmm. Um, but he chose not to. And my guess is that his mother from Jamaica, Elizabeth Steele, probably could not pass and that the love and interdependence between the two of them was such that he would never leave her behind. And so he stays, he not only stays with the black community, but he works tirelessly on behalf of the black community Mm -hmm. um, and does some really remarkable things. So one other thing he does, he moves over to Brooklyn in 1870. And in 1881, I think it is, um, uh, Seth Lowe, who was then mayor of Brooklyn, and later when in 1898, when Brooklyn and New York were combined, he becomes mayor of New York. But at this time, he's mayor of Brooklyn, and he appoints um, Philip White to the Brooklyn Board of Education. And Philip was the first black um, to serve on the Board of Education of, of uh, Brooklyn. And at that time, the Brooklyn schools were segregated. There were schools, the regular school system for white children, and then the colored schools. And I think there were three of them. And Philip manages to, um, I think in 1883, to get legislation passed that integrated the public, uh, the public schools mm-hmm. so that any white, any black child could go to a regular public school if the parents wanted um, them to. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also, and I think this is what's really remarkable, 
insisted that the colored schools stay open mm-hmm. and um, actually that their, the situation, the buildings be improved mm-hmm. so that if black parents wanted to keep their kids in a black school mm-hmm. that is in the community, in the neighborhood, and most importantly, taught by black teachers right. who would understand them, they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant move on um, Philip White's part. And it took a while. It didn't happen immediately. Um, You know, there's what's de jure and then de facto. But that's what he managed to do. And I think it's really remarkable. Yeah, and I'm reading that part, too. I I got the impression, yes, um, just what you're just saying. I got the impression that he was for integration and cosmopolitanism and movement freedom to move and cross borders wherever that one wanted. But... He also was very aware of the circumstances and the necessity for um, the black schools um, and also just to kind of consider, I wanted to talk a little bit later about the, the terror in which uh, black New Yorkers live, particularly your chapter on whimsy and resistance. I'll talk a little bit more about that later or ask you a question about that later. Um, but just considering that, it makes sense that he would um, encourage that or, or leave that as an option for black parents to be able to send their kids to uh, black schools. Right. And the other thing, of course, is when the schools were integrated, who were the teachers going to be? It right. was going to be white teachers. Right. I, you know, many would not countenance, many white parents would not countenance the idea of black teachers teaching their children. Mm-hmm. Um, although eventually that did happen. Mm-hmm. So my great Grand aunt um, Maricha Lyons. Mm-hmm. I she is the source of much of the material I have on my family because she wrote this uh, memoir in 1929, which I think was the, the year she died. Mm-hmm. And she devoted herself to education, mm-hmm. and she started out in one of the colored schools, but then became, um, I think, an assistant principal in another school, which was one of the regular um, uh, public schools. Mm -hmm. So that did happen um, after a while, and I don't know enough uh, um, uh, about it. I I haven't been able to find reactions on the part of white parents, but Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty extraordinary, Mm -hmm. too. Definitely. One of the things that struck me, I couldn't, I mean, it happened again and again and again as I was reading through, is when you're talking about the, the black elite in Gotham City, um, it seems that much of the description reminded me of what we normally attribute to a new Negro era of the turn of the 20th century, at the turn of the 20th century. Yet here were these individuals living far earlier a lifestyle that we often um, like I said, a tribute to the very end of the 19th century slash Harlem Renaissance era, moving into that time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that surprising for you as well? Um, no, not really. No? <laughs> because my field is 19th century African-American okay. literature, culture, history. Mm-hmm. And in the book that I did before, Doers of the Word, mm-hmm. um, I was already examining this northern, free northern black population. Mm-hmm. And um, that book, in that book, I don't 
look at one single city, but it's very clear that Philadelphia uh, mm-hmm. emerges as kind of the center of literary and cultural activity, and that's mm-hmm. true. And I and and uh, and Boston also I looked at. So by the time I got to New York, I was not. That was something that I expected. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons why I did write the book is that everybody thinks, everybody, most people think that um, cultural literary life in New York started with the Harlem Renaissance. And so one of my, the big points that I want to make is no, in fact, there was a vibrant um, literary and cultural movement um, under much more severe, difficult, arduous circumstances in in New York uh, in the 19th century before the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, and so what do you think, that's, that's precisely the point I was getting at, what, what do you think um, fuels or why do you think that there is that gap? Um, why do we forget about or not investigate, um, I don't know if these are the right words, or why is it that we've just stuck to the New Negro um, era as at the turn of the 20th century, as opposed to looking further back and seeing. I mean, it's, I found it fascinating that you were able to unearth all of this information that was there, that's there to be found. Right, right, right. Well, I think it's part of the, part of the answer, or, yeah, would be the fact that we still so much associate the 19th century with slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say African-American uh, and 19th century, and people will just respond, oh, slavery in the South. Right. And so what you're focusing in on there is the concept of oral traditions, mm-hmm. um, of spirituals, mm-hmm. um, of a, you know vernacular culture, and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And the study of free blacks in the North in the antebellum period actually came quite late. I mean, it really wasn't until... Um, maybe the 1970s, I'm thinking about Gary Nash and his book on Philadelphia and Jim and and Lois Horton and their book on Boston. So the study of black communities, urban communities in the North was really kind of late in coming. And it starts, of course, with kind of um, uh, political and social history, the abolition movement, et cetera, et cetera. And then you know, only after that kind of gets to the more literary, artistic aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing is that I was really interested in what you just mentioned before, this issue of memory and forgetting. Mm-hmm. And on a personal level within my own family, there was a lot of forgetting going on right. and more than remembering. And I think that the break came in my father's and his sister, my aunt's generation, which would be early 20th century. And my aunt, whose name was was Dorothy Peterson, was actually a fringe member of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. She was very close to Langston Hughes, to Nella Larson, Mm -hmm. uh, to Carl Van Vechten. And she ran around with them. She also fed them. She had a steady job as a teaching Spanish um, in the public school system. And so while they were starving, she was able to feed them. Mm -hmm. And they very much identified as new Negroes. Mm -hmm. And 
um, here's where you get the personal and the political or the public um, kind of overlapping. Mm -hmm. My aunt had a very difficult relationship with her her, um, parents, especially with her mother. And a lot of what she did in her life was just um, to oppose them, to go against them. So anything I think that they were invested in, which would be um, St. Philip's Episcopal Church, um, you know, 19th century, what she would have thought of as Victorian attitudes. Mm -hmm. She just wanted to get away from that and kind of stick her finger in their eye. Mm -hmm. And I, and my father was her baby brother whom she adored. And I think she dragged him along with her. Mm -hmm. And I think their attitude was the 19th century. Wow. That's really old. It's old fashioned. It's parochial. It's provincial. And we are, you know, we are truly new Negroes. And so there is there in my family, there was that element of forgetting. Mm -hmm. And I think that it transcended just my family, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, was part of, um, the larger black society oh, yes. in New York. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, what becomes clear is that um, there is a concern, particularly, I'm glad you've gone into, we're going to move into discussing the methodology of, of how you um, merge, how you fill the gaps of, um, uh, the, the fill the gaps that were in the official narrative, whether it's the official narrative of American history or the official narrative of your own personal family history. I really want to um, share that with our viewers. Um, but it seems to me that even whether it's in American history or whether it's in your personal family, there is is and always has been a real preoccupation with whether it, across classes with white the white gaze into black family um, or black history. Black history, and that often um, affected what was recorded, what was archived, what was not. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology you use, um, imagination as a part of this recovery? Uh, yeah, but you have to start with facts. <laughs> yes, yes, of course, of course. Um, so one of the reasons why I decided to do a family history was one, I when I finally late in life decided, okay, you're really American. Um, I wanted to find out more about my own roots. And uh, so as I've suggested, my family had given me very little. Uh, my aunt just, she was the one who was in position to talk about her 19th century forebears and she just, and she didn't. So, um, you know, it was up to me to find out. So it was personal, but I was also interested in looking at family history as a methodology mm-hmm. and what can we get from from doing family history as a really um, legitimate um, methodology, mm-hmm. the historical methodology. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me was, of course, in the 19th century, African Americans weren't supposed to have family. Right. Right. We were incapable of having family. We didn't know anything about the ties that bind nurture. And so, you know, you could split up slave families, etc. So the idea that we were incapable of family life um, and then the idea that whatever history we had has been absolutely lost. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to test those two facts. And, you know, here I 
recovered, for example, an intact family full of whites, of a white man, a black woman, and mixed-race children. Mm-hmm. And they, they were there. That's a historical fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one, the fact of having a family. And then also the other, the possibility of recovery. Mm-hmm. So so many people say to me, wow, Carla, you're so lucky to, that you have this history and da-da-da. And I'm like, well, I found it in the archives. Oh, well, I can't do that. I'm like, why? Have you have you tried? Mm-hmm. And most often they haven't. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is to go into the archives, yes. and you simply don't know what you'll find when you get to the archives, and you find stuff that really, really surprises mm-hmm. you. So that's what I did. I started with nothing but in one name. I had the name Philip Augustus White. That's what I started with. And I went up to New York, and I started looking. And the first thing that happened, I was at the Schomburg, and I was going through the collection of a woman um, who'd left her papers there, Rhoda Golden Freeman. Mm-hmm. And um, this was pre-computer, and so she had um, all those file cards. She had 12 boxes of um, cards um, on which she kept these notes, and one of the boxes was labeled biography. And I started going through it, and I found an obituary of Philip White. And right behind it was the obituary of this person named Peter Guignon. And I never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. So I started reading and discovered the connection of father-in-law, son-in-law. And so I just patiently kind of went through the archives. The Schomburg was really important. The New York Historical Society, the New York Public Library, and others. Um, Just looking, you know, for whatever I could find and going in day after day, having no idea what was there. Mm -hmm. And days when I found nothing and days when I just, I did find something. Mm -hmm. So in my... How long, long, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just right there, can you tell us how long the process was for you to come out with this brilliant result? 11 years. 11 years. And it was truly, truly worth it. Right. So what... One of my great treasures that I, one of the great treasures I found was um, a TypeScript um, uh, mem- uh, memoir by Maricha Lyon, right. so my great grand aunt. And um, that is such a fascinating document. So she talk, starts off in her prologue by talking about the way in which her father, Alvaro Lyons, who, oh, how to go into this, who at one point was Peter Guignon's brother-in-law, they married mm-hmm. sisters, um, had gone to her, Maricha, and said, I wanted to write, this was late in his life, and he said, I always wanted to write uh, a history of the men of my generation, mm-hmm. but I never got around to it beyond the title, which was going to be The Gentleman in Black. Mm-hmm. So I want you to do it. So she turns to her nephew, Harry Alvaro Williamson, and she says, I'm not up to the task. Why don't you do it? And he says, um, or he doesn't have time, whatever. And he gives her all of his documents. And she talks about the documents as fugitive scraps. Mm. And that was a phrase that just caught my attention. Because uh, Philip White's and Peter Guignol's obituary came from pages torn out of somebody's scrapbook. I don't know who it was. Um, But the person had cut the 
opiates out of a newspaper and pasted them into her scrapbook. And then you have uh, Richard referring to scraps, fugitive scraps. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking scraps. I'm taking scraps of paper, Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to put them together to create a story about my family and about black New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, in my prologue, I invite my readers to read my book as a kind of scrapbook. Mm -hmm. So each chapter would be like a scrapbook page, Mm -hmm. and um, you would find photos, and you would find anecdotes and so forth on it. Of course, it's it's a cohesive book. It's a continuous narrative. Definitely, But I I just think of it very much as a scrapbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it, and I think it actually um, begs for us to reconsider the ways in which we look at well, what we would call little H history versus big H history. Um, yeah, yeah so I, and so not only the history itself, but the way we tell it. Sure. And sure. Um, so I think a lot of people were still, who are still bound to more conventional, traditional methodologies would not touch the topic because they would say, there's simply not enough there. Right. You, you know, scraps are just not enough. Right. Whereas if you think of it from a newer perspective, so I'm writing history with a little H, and I'm writing it um, kind of embracing the scrap quality and right. being able to do something of it, I think that that's important. Yes. Well, and so is patience, evidently. <laughs> yes. Right? And yes. curiosity. Yes. Curiosity. Yes. And, and, and also time. And also time, right? I mean, yes. this is yes. this yes. is what we do as a profession, and so right. we're right. lucky in right. that way. But you also talked about imagination, yeah. and I think that that was really an important po- uh, point because when you have scraps, you do have to um, really tap into your imagination. Yes. Yeah. And one way of doing it is to take scraps, you know, five different scraps, and say, well. I don't know what these are about. They're about the same person, but they don't make sense in Mm -hmm. making sense of them. Mm -hmm. Or if you have scraps missing, Mm -hmm. um, then you need to imagine. So one of the things that I do, and and this is all based on, on, on fact, is at the end of, I think, Chapter 5, I take Philip White on a walking tour. Oh, that's my favorite passage. I'm so glad. I was just going to ask you about it. I love it. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so by by the the 1850s, he's really arrived. He had his store, he had his home, and uh, he had his, his mother and his sister were living with him. He had friends all over the city. So I said, well, let's imagine what a day in his life would be like. So he leaves his home early. I take him through this area called the Five Points, mm-hmm. where um, masses of blacks and also Irish live. Mm-hmm. And I take him through the Five Points, and, and he passes St. Philip's. So I have a little meditation on St. Philip's. And he gets to his pharmacy, and I have him compound medicine uh, to take down to the colored sailor's home because Alpro Lyons and William Powell run the sailor's home and they have a sick sailor or something. Mm-hmm. So that gives me a chance to talk about cholera and what mm-hmm. cholera had done to New York in um, 1849, this devastating outbreak. And then he swings around or he gets to the tip of, of uh, Lower Manhattan. He's on Broad Street and he stops in at Thomas Downing's um, 
oyster house mm-hmm. and um, eats there. And uh, Thomas Downing was a very famous, um, had this very famous oyster house that catered to city officials and so forth. And then he swings up the west side past um, Peter Guignol's barber shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he was, he had not yet married Peter Guignol's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ends up at the home of James McKean Smith. Uh, the doctor and pharmacist with whom he apprenticed and who is ill um, at home. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, Philip didn't actually do that, but mm-hmm. I thought that that was a more interesting way of showing the kinds of things, I mean, all, all the different activities that he was involved with. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say that by the time I finished, and the book was already in copy editing, and all of a sudden I was panicked that, maybe the walking tour was not realistic and I didn't have any sense. I mean, I thought I had a sense and I I did, but I was like, maybe that just doesn't make sense in doing that all in one day. Mm -hmm. So I prevailed upon a friend of mine and we did the whole walking tour one, one afternoon and um, stopped by all the places. And she'd actually written a history of black New Yorkers and had never done this. And she was like, wow, that's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it made total sense that the walk made total sense. Yes. Well, I, there's a quote that you have on page 92 and I have a note here. It says spoken like a true literary scholar. Tonight, if you don't mind, I, I would love to share it with our listeners. And it's sure. talking about book reading. What's the what's the um, effect of book reading? One of the effects. So book reading offered the students other gifts. It gave them the capacity to be amazed. It allowed free reign to their imaginations. It invited them to experience different kinds of aesthetic pleasures. It opened them up to beauty. It convinced them that they too could be citizens of the world. And that is talking obviously about the young people um the, the students at the Mulberry Street School, but I had to say, once I was going through and looking at the ways in which you drew upon imagination, and that's not to take away from the majority of this text, which is, is completely based upon findings in the archives and facts, but I just love the merging of the two. It's just clear that, that you're clearly somebody who's, who loves reading, you know, you're a literary scholar. Right, right, um, right. Let me ask you, did you have, um, just talking about family history as, excuse me, yeah, family history, uh, methodologies for family history, for using or legitimizing family history as official history, did you, were there any, was there anything that you were ambivalent about including in the text? Um, just because you now recognize, hey, this is, you have a connection, you have an investment, you, you know, this is your family that you're recovering. Do you, did you at any points when you found materials that they didn't want to include in their narrative, did you find that, that you were struggling with whether it was something that you would include in this narrative? Um, absolutely. And I've been asked this question before. Okay. And so what I'm, of course, thinking of is Philip White. Yeah. Um, and the way, the very ambivalent, ambiguous, or maybe not even ambiguous, but um, uh, negative attitude that he took towards political activism in the 1850s. And so the 1850s is pre-Civil War and things are getting worse and worse for black Americans. 
Fugitive Slave Law, law Kansas Nebraska Act, Dred mm-hmm. Scott, and so forth. And black New Yorkers, the uh, uh, black, the New York's black leaders are really agitating, um, you know, for um, abolition, for um, uh, reform of all kinds, and, and, and so forth. And um, James McCune Smith is really the leader in this. And uh, McCune Smith was a doctor; he was a pharmacist, but he was also the most amazing um, black leader. Mm-hmm. Um, He's been overshadowed by Frederick Douglass, which I think is really too bad. Mm-hmm. And then, so I found um, references in newspapers by James McCune Smith and also by George Downing mm-hmm. um, taking uh, Philip White to task for not being involved mm-hmm. and for staying on the sidelines. And even at one point saying that uh, it denouncing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, so that was um, uh, over the issue of, of slavery in the territories. Mm-hmm. So the idea of my great grandfather not opposing, or or the suggestion that he thought it was okay for slavery to be extended into territories mm-hmm. was really pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. And in my first in the first draft of the book, I did not include that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the second draft. I decided that I really had to mm-hmm. and um, and try to offer an explanation. And I don't think it's so much because his father was a white man and it said to him, you know, when all is said and done, you're a white man too or more white than black. But mm-hmm. maybe his father told him that that was not his issue, mm-hmm. that his issue And what he should be concerned about were his own people, which would be free free blacks in the North Mm -hmm. who were in positions to become entrepreneurs and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do talk about that. And yeah, yeah, it was not pleasant. But what happens is then I found an article in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, white newspaper, um, not friendly to African-Americans, to blacks, where some enterprising journalist was going around Brooklyn and um, uh, um, interviewing uh, black Brooklynites, and they got to my great-grandfather, and they said, well, he wasn't very revealing. He holds things close to the vest, Mm -hmm, I think they mm -hmm, said. mm -hmm. Um, But um, in talking to other people um, about Philip White, um, they mentioned his so other... um, uh, black Brooklynites and black New Yorkers, they mentioned how um, Philip White had found a new progressive spirit mm-hmm. and was doing so much for the cause of, of blacks. Mm-hmm. And so those were free blacks. You know, he lived in their midst. We have the repeal of Reconstruction yes. after that great moment of the passage of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, you know, there the, the Jim Crow laws and black codes and so forth. Mm-hmm. And this was him and his people. This was things that, these were issues that were right around Philip White. And so he threw himself wholeheartedly into that. He was active in, uh, in the local Republican Party. Um, I told you what he did with the Brooklyn Board of Ed. Yes. So I think that that's what made sense to him. Those were issues that he could relate to. Definitely. And I and I also I also one of the things that I walked away with about you know his character is um, 
that he strategized. I mean, there seemed to be always some kind of purpose behind what he was doing. And although it may not have been evident to others, he still stood by whatever it was, was that he thought. I'm thinking in particular about um, the convention for getting the St. Philip's to be um, recognized as um, an official um Gosh, I, I don't know the, the word. It's not the diocese because that's a number of different of them together, right? Churches. No, to get uh, accepted to become members of, to gain admission to the diocesan convention. Okay, that's right. In, okay. In, uh, of, New, of New York State. Yes. yes. That's exactly right. And yeah. how he supported, um, not Underdunk, the other guy who had a problem with sexual indiscretions. Um, well, that was Andre Donk and Morris as well. And Morris, right. And right, so right. eventually supporting and then going after and saying, we need some help or we need some, how can, can you imagine or tell us how we can um, uh, make our argument so that we can become members of that convention? It, so basically what I'm saying is the way in which you told that portion of his story, it made me think that Initially, people were really upset. How could you support this guy? He was not very good. He had prevented the grass and, you know, a host of others from becoming, uh, being admitted to um, the seminary. Um, but then by the end of the story, we get to see that there was perhaps another alternative, um, an ulterior motive. Yeah. So that was, that was the Bishop Andre Dong. Right. And, um, I think he got dismissed actually before um, the vote at the convention, and so he was followed by Morris. And I find that so interesting that my two sex scandals in the book right. were done by white men of the cloth. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it was very much, um, oh, you know, the bottom line is we want to gain membership because the diocesan convention, first of all, meant that you were legit. You were legit um, right. Episcopal parish, number one, but it also then meant that you were entitled to funds, right? right? Um, right. You would get money from the diocesan convention. And so that's the bottom line. So we, you know, do what we need to do in order to get there. Mm -hmm. The other great example, of course, is the draft riots, which we haven't talked about yet, right, right. which was July 1683, and I have a whole chapter on that oh, in yes. my book. Mm -hmm. So while African-American homes were being identified and assaulted, and um, Albro Lyons' um, uh, uh, home um, was uh, practically burned to the ground, and he and Philip White both lived on Vanderwater Street. So you have Albro Lyons, whose home is invaded by the mob and pretty well demolished, and you have Philip White, who is not touched, neither his home nor his pharmacy. Right. So the story that I found in the newspapers, and I think it was given, um, I think that Albro Lyons and his wife passed it down to the family, and then Harry Albro Williamson gave it to the newspapers. Um, but what the um, this story was that um, uh, he Philip White was barricaded in his pharmacy, which was right around the corner from Van, his home on Vanderwater Street, and people came and said the merchants in the neighborhood 
who had befriended him said, you better get out. You know, they're going to torture your pharmacy and destroy it. And he said, no, I have nothing to fear. My neighbors will protect me. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely right mm -hmm. because he was living at that point um, that area, which was known as the swamp, so mm -hmm. it's close, getting close to the East River. Yes. Um, uh, 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 that area was increasingly Irish, but the Irish antagonistic towards African Americans. But they were poor, and they got sick a lot because of the of the very dire conditions in which they lived. And the account is that my great grandfather, that Philip gave away medicines for free, drugs. When um, the poor Irish neighbors couldn't afford it, uh, he gave away clothes, he gave away money. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he did it because he was generally altruistic, mm -hmm. but also because he wanted to preserve the goodwill of his neighbors. Mm -hmm. So when the pharmacy, when this mob came, an, another an Irish mob came to attack the pharmacy, the Irish neighbors said, no, this man is important to the community. Mm -hmm. We need this pharmacy. Uh, and we need Philip White, mm -hmm. and you are not going to demolish it. Right. So um, altruism, but also a strategy of how mm -hmm. to be a good neighbor. Yeah. And so I protect them by giving them drugs and, and clothes and so forth, mm -hmm. and when the time comes, they protect me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's another sign of Philip White's genius. I really yeah. do. Uh, well, I think, and also good good fortune, because in the, your chapter on whimsy and resistance, we show, so, or you show, excuse me, not we, but we see, you show, <laughs> that there's so many times where people have done things, you know, various characters have done things in hopes that it would, well, maybe not in hopes that it would be returned to them, but we saw oftentimes that things were not um, reciprocated, that, that neighborliness or... Um, right, right. That, that friendship. So I got the term whimsy actually from... Toni Morrison, mm -hmm. who, after writing Beloved, I heard her give a talk, and she made the comment, she said, after all, the slave system was nothing but whimsy, mm -hmm. and I was just shocked. I'm like, no, it was regulated. So-and-so mm -hmm. -so is a slave. So-and-so is a slave for life. So-and-so's children are slaves, etc. It's mm -hmm. a regulated system. But then she went on to talk about how so much of it depended on the whim of the slave master yes. and that he can do whatever he want, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. And so I thought of that when I was looking at race relations um, in New York City in the book. Mm -hmm. New York City was a very prejudiced, very racist place mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's because the city had very close commercial ties, ties to the with the South. I know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it was very pro-Southern and very anti-Black, very racist. And, um, you know, horrible things happened to Blacks in streetcars, on the street, um, in public places, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone's in a while, whites being very accepting. Mm -hmm. So... Um, this guy by the name of Philip Bell writes this article in Frederick Douglass's paper where he says, well, I went to the opera and I sat next to this white woman and we chatted about the opera and so forth. And you're like, what? Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, when um, there were anti-slavery conventions mm -hmm. and so black and white abolitionists met, mm -hmm. James McKean Smith has this account of asking 
um, I think it's the Tappets, so the famous brothers, Arthur and Louis Tappet, who are these, um, you know, at the head of the abolitionist movement in New York um, City. Um, And they asked him, so why don't you hire white clerks um, in your your business? They were very entrepreneurial merchants. And I think Louis Tappet very lamely says, well, I couldn't find one that was qualified and we know what that means yes of course yeah Mm -hmm. and so you have white abolitionists who are not stepping up to the plate Mm -hmm. so that's why i call it whimsy and i suggest that black new yorkers when they left the house never knew never knew what to expect yes and that becomes so evident and that's one of the things that after i read that chapter i thought this this is the this is precisely what terrorism is. You just don't know. You just don't know. You could leave your house that day and just you have absolutely no idea if you will return. That to me is um, terrorizing. However, it speaks also to the um, survival, the power. I, I want to find all these great big words to uh describe the community of blacks that are living in, particularly in Gotham City, in New York at this time, given all of the facts that you outlined for us so clearly in terms of the, the, the life that they were living, the good, the bad, the ugly as well. Um, Carla, you were coming around to the end here, and I have a quote that I want to read, but I also wanted to, I want to start with the quote. Um, And it's on 393, and it's the very end, and it says, uh, Forgetting is not the same as erasing, destroying, obliterating. The past has survived, if only in the form of scraps. The archives in their many guises became a place for safekeeping, for storing memories of the past that were simply waiting to be brought back to light and life in the ripeness of time. And I thought you did an excellent, excellent job of bringing those scraps, those fugitive scraps, uh, to take Marisha Lyons' um, uh, phrase, to life for your readers. You said at the very beginning of our interview that, you know, you're coming back. You you actually went across the Atlantic and then decided, well, for sure, I want to get into this African-American 19th century history And so your returning was kind of, um, to do the research was kind of a homecoming. And I wanted to know if you you, uh, achieved that quote-unquote homecoming at the end. Did you find it during, throughout, at the end of this project? Um, Definitely. And um, that's why, to me, the 11 long years were very, very definitely Mm -hmm. worth it. Mm -hmm. I think in the beginning, as I was getting my feet there, yeah, um, solid on the ground that there was a lot of anxiety and so I couldn't really feel it but definitely um, by the middle of the enterprise so half of the 11 years passed I really started to feel it and I think that it's when I realized and 
how to write a book and what it's going to be, you never have it totally at the beginning. And right. so you're working on it to figure out what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And there was a point at which I realized how important geography was going to be. And mm-hmm. I did not have that sense at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's why the book is titled Black Gotham, because mm-hmm. it's about a city. It's really, mm-hmm. I mean, the main character of the book is really the city and how blacks crisscross it every day, interacting with one another, interacting with whites and so forth. And then once I realized that, I I became aware of how important neighborhoods were and places where people lived. So I took, the the streets actually became an archive. Mm -hmm. And I would, it's like Philip White's walking tour. I would go down to areas and stand there and say, well, this is where, you know, St. Philip's would have been. This is where my great-grandfather's pharmacy would have been. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, of geography, what one of my friends called social geography, became really, really important. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started claiming ownership of New York City. Is mm-hmm. You know, this is my place. Yeah. I can go and stand someplace. <laughs> it's like, you know, in 1847, my great-grandfather established his pharmacy here. Right or here. right on this spot. Right. St. Philip's was built, and my great-great-great-grandparents or whatever, uh, great-great-great-grandparents um, eventually became members of St. Philip's. Yeah. So that's that was very powerful, and I, I feel very much that way about New York City. It is my city. Well, listen, I'm not trying to take it from you. It doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't sound like you'll let me. I think that that is absolutely wonderful. Uh, to our listeners, you've been listening to... Uh, Sherry Johnson and Dr. Carla Peterson discuss her book, Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. And we definitely want to thank you, Carla, for being with us today. Uh, Before we go, I I want to say, um, gosh, there's just so much more in this text that we haven't, and we didn't even talk too much about Peter Guignol, who was his, you know, outcome and, and his legacy, and his son, you know, what ends up happening to his son. There's just so much more um, utopian societies and friendship albums. I mean, just really interesting and lovely things that I'm sure any reader will um, enjoy. Uh, before we go, though, can you just share with us what you're working on now? Are you resting? What are you doing? Um, I'm resting a little bit, uh, but this is something that listeners might be interested in. Um, I started a digital archive based mm-hmm. on the book. Mm-hmm. So um, the book is out in paperback and is available. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also go on the internet and if you type in, well, you could get it through my name, mm-hmm. I'm sure, but if you type in archive.blackgotham.com, archive.org mm-hmm. you get to my digital archive mm-hmm. and I have about oh maybe 5% of what I ultimately want to have um, up there mm-hmm. but I have some of the stories um, the archive allows me to put up a lot more images yes. um, than I was allowed in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yale University Press was very nice and gave me I think maybe space for 45 images but they're going to be a lot more um, uh, on the archive, and I tell some of these stories, yeah. um, but do it more through pictures uh, yes. than through through words. So uh, listeners might might really enjoy that. And, and what we'll do is I will include 
in the once we upload the uh, video, uh, the audio for this interview, I will also include in the review portion the archive, the website right. address, so that right. readers right. can go right. on and and really begin to read. They can't read the text right away. They certainly can read those images in, in the text that you include as you guide us along in that journey on the web. Yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to say, yes, very ma'am. important for, for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, um, uh, a tab that you click on and says contribute your story or something like that. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm not there yet, mm-hmm. but eventually I want to get stories of, from other people who have black Gotham stories mm-hmm. in particular 19th century mm-hmm. um, and who can contribute. So I've got Peter Guignon and Philip White and, and a few others, but if there's somebody out there whose family was uh, in New York City in the 19th century, mm-hmm. a black person or a white person uh, whose family had ties with the city, I would love to have stories, images, um, if you would, if you wish to contribute to them. So my idea is really to take my Black Gotham story, mm-hmm. which after all is my family and is personal, and just enlarge it and make it bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. um, until it's really um, a monster history yeah, um, yeah. of Black New Yorkers in um, 19th century New York City. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful extension, and it seems to follow in the tradition of of uh, many people who begin studying something with home, you know, a, right. a great study right. that, that starts right. with yourself, starts right. personally. Um, right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We wish you all the very best. Thank and so um, we'll be definitely uh, looking forward to posting this so that all the listeners will be able to have access to it. Thank you so much, Sherry. You're welcome. I'm Sherry Johnson, host of the interview series, New Books in African American Studies. And you've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Carla L. Peterson, where we discuss her new book, Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. I hope you'll join me next time.